So rather than speaking to the institution about what they need to do, I want to speak to the person who is neurodivergent and encourage them to come and work with us because we will value you. Like we will find uh, things that you can do that will really help us and you could end up really good at it. And I would also say you'll probably really enjoy it because I really enjoy it. Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. My guest today is Simon Smith, who's an award-winning editor whose most recent credits are the HBO series Chernobyl and the Disney Plus series Star Wars Andor. While Simon has been on many podcasts already talking about his successful work as an editor, our conversation today instead centers around neurodiversity in the workplace. And why, you might ask? Because it was only recently that Simon was diagnosed as an adult with autism. Not only does Simon embrace his autism, he considers it to be one of his greatest assets when it comes to his successful career as an editor, and this is a mindset that he inspires all of us to adopt. Whether it's mental, physical, circumstantial, noticeable to others, or just to you, each and every one of us has some form of disability. And no matter the disability that may be holding you back in your life, this conversation will give you the tools and the inspiration that you need to reframe your obstacles and transform them into your superpowers. It is all about perspective. In this conversation, Simon shares with us that autism is nothing more than a difference in the way that the mind works, and we discuss the importance of embracing all forms of neurodiversity in the workplace such that we can utilize everyone's value. He provides a refreshing take on how we can open our minds to the fact that we don't all think the same, nor should we. And as an added bonus, Simon and I geek out on the fallacy of striving for work-life balance and what we should be focusing on instead so we can all live more fulfilling, creative lives. 
All right, without further ado, my conversation with award-winning editor Simon Smith. To access the show notes for this episode with all of the bonus links and resources that we discussed today, as well as to subscribe, leave a review, and more, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 191. I am here today with Simon Smith, who is an editor whose recent credits include the award-winning HBO series Chernobyl, for which you won an Emmy, a BAFTA, and an Eddie Award, and it may not be quite as sexy or cool as an EGOT, but technically you got an, an EB or an EB or a B compared to what the, the combination is, but the fact that you got the Emmy, the BAFTA, and the Eddie certainly says a lot about your work on Chernobyl. Uh, you've also worked on the Disney Plus series Star Wars and or, uh, and you also mentioned in your bio that you have three small children and you live by the coast in Brighton, England. So Simon, such a pleasure to finally have you on the microphone. It would take us half the episode to just talk about what it took to get you here. The point is you're here and I'm super excited and very grateful. So thank you. Thanks, man. It's really nice to be here. Really, really nice to be here. One of the things I learned about people relatively quickly, and it's kind of one of my my ninja tactics that I have, having done over 300 of these interviews, I learn a lot about a person by how they answer the question, how do you want to be introduced on the show? Because it used to be, here's your, just provide with me, provide for me your bio. And then people send one or two paragraphs, kind of the standard third person thing. But then when I ask them to write, I want you to say how you'll be introduced in the show, I can tell very quickly a lot about a person. What I can tell about you is that you are humble, almost to a fault. Would you say that that's relatively accurate? That's, if I say that's very kind of you, that probably- You just confirmed you just my said. suspicion. <laughs> The reason I say that is because you said, and I actually embellished your introduction just because I needed to. You said, I worked on the show Chernobyl and Disney plus Star Wars and or I have three kids and I live in Brighton, England. I'm like, you're selling yourself a little bit short, my friend, because what you have accomplished in this industry is amazing for anyone. But the context for which I want to frame this is because of the reason you reached out to me what we're going to talk about. You were recently diagnosed with autism. So for somebody to say, well, it's amazing for anybody to do this, but for somebody with autism to do it, that's amazing, you know? That was so courageous of you to decide to do this despite the fact that you suffer from this problem, you know, good for you. Obviously, that's not the way that I want to frame it, but I have a feeling that that's how some people frame this, right? Yeah, and, you know, maybe um, I would have even thought of it in that way, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But actually, uh, having, you know, um, thought a lot about it and I do spend a lot of time thinking I actually conclude that all of the success uh, you know the the, the Chernobyl and, and Star Wars and everything that I am good at is connected to my autism to my neurodiversity to my brain um, so actually I don't think that I would be uh, as successful at, at those things uh, if I was not autistic or if like I personally I wouldn't be um that successful all of the things that um I owe it to but I owe it to my autism really and that's something that uh makes me want to talk about it because I know that you know growing up and and maybe and lots of other people who have brains that they know are quite different to other people makes you it can lead to periods of you know lack of self-worth uh not feeling valuable not feeling able to do things everything you just said about you know how difficult it must be i think you can you can have those thoughts in your mind but actually 
uh, my autism has allowed me to do my job. And I, I, I really think not only has it enabled me and, and empowered me to do my job, but it's so intertwined with post-production specifically. You know, like I think that definitely when I got my diagnosis, one of the things I thought is, wow, if I'm autistic and I'm learning this, I know a bunch of people who I work with who would be interested in this and who should maybe go on this journey and maybe get their, their brains checked out because there's a lot to learn um, from that process. And I see it, I feel like I've got a, a neurodivergent radar now um, and I can pick up all over the place. But ah, that, that person's brain is thinking like my brain thinks or, or isn't thinking like other people's brains think. I listen to your podcast and some of the people that speak to you on your podcast, I swear, I'm like, ah, that guy, that girl, they, they, they'd be interested. They should get tested. They should, they should see where this, where this journey takes them. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's part of what we do. I love the idea that you said a neurodivergent radar, because uh, I feel like that's something that I have as well. And uh, just this is something I've talked about before. Full disclosure, you and I have talked about this a little bit offline. Um, I was diagnosed with adult onset ADD when I was give or take about 25 years old. And that was, I hate to say it on a recording, 17 years ago, uh, just because in my brain, I'm still 25. I feel 25, I've got the, actually I feel much better than I did at 25. But to think that that was 17 years ago still kind of scares me. The point being, things were a lot different in brain science back then. And you couldn't, you know, not that you can now, but it's not like you could take a simple blood test or spit test and say, yes, you are ADD. It's based on a multitude of factors, behavioral factors. How does your brain think? How do you process information? And they came to conclusion based on that and some experimentation with different medications, once something started working, they're like, this medication only works for people that are dealing with ADD. And for me, it just opened up the entire world. I went from, I can't process information, I can't pay my bills and do laundry, within three days to thinking, this is how, quote unquote, normal people feel. This is amazing. This is not how my brain usually works. So it was that whole process. Uh, but the point being, that what I wanna to get to a lot more throughout this episode is number one, better understanding the stigmas that come with being neurodivergent. But number two, I think for a lot of people, when it comes to disabilities in general, and disabilities have been a huge point of interest for me and something I've talked about for years and years and did an entire documentary about it. The lesson that I learned more than any other of the thousand life lessons I got from the documentary was that everybody has a disability. Every single person has some form of disability in some context. However, if you learn to reframe your perspective, you can turn that disability into a superpower. And you are somebody that I think is the perfect example of not just, well, I've suffered from autism and I make my way through. When you first emailed me, my response was exactly the opposite. Like you said, like maybe it even makes you better at your job or makes it easier. What I literally thought when you sent that to me is like, Oh, I get it now. He's been cheating the whole time. Like he's totally cheating because <laughs> like organizing all this footage and the bins and it's like, you're totally cheating because for you, that's so easy, right? And for me, for years, my kryptonite was the ADD. Like I could barely function, but I've learned how to harness it into a superpower. And that's what I want to talk about with you is understanding how you were able to take this neurodiversity, both politically, but just also both as a craftsman and a technician to really harness it as your superpower. But I want to go back first before diving right into that. I want to learn a little bit more about what are the things that you maybe recognized either at the time or in hindsight when you were younger or even just a few years ago that led you to believe 
there's something going on here. And how did that ultimately lead to your diagnosis? Oh, that's great. Um, so I think, and you'll relate to this, like my brain can sometimes feel like it's doing a million things. Like it, it, it can feel like a, a computer that's got too many tabs open or, or, or 24 seven. You just described my life <laughs> yeah. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you don't believe me, ask anybody on my team. It never stops. So yes, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that there's that feeling a lot of the time. There's and um, when you're having conversations with people and y- you just feel like they're not thinking what what you're thinking, right? And and you're like, why is your brain not doing what my brain is? Why is your brain not going there where my brain is going there? And you know that's that could be incredibly difficult. Uh, and it's only since diagnosis and learning more about how my brain is wired up differently that I feel now armed with that knowledge that I go into those same situations um, with a much more open mind to, to, to translate in. So I take more time in translating what I'm thinking and I take more time in listening to what other people are actually saying. I do this thing which I've become aware of when I'm listening to people, especially in, a, in, a, in an edit suite like this one, where I'll like lean in, <laughs> I'll physically lean in closer to taking what they're saying. I'll, I'll, when they're talking mid-sentence, I'll just stop them and I'll be like, what do you mean? Like, what is it that you mean? I, I, I need to translate this. I need to real-time translate this. But having learned that my brain is different and that their brain is different and that all of our brains are different, and I actually feel that out of that, I can have more emphatic, creative relationships with people. And that's all we're all trying to do in, in filmmaking, if anything, is, is collaborators is to try and uh, interpret what each other are thinking and, and, and get the most out of that. Um, in terms of like growing up, like it's so funny because if anything, like I, I look back on it now and it's, it was so obvious, you know, like I, I, I remember being a kid and never really playing with the other children. I remember spending most lunch times in the classroom on my own doing some thing that the teacher had given me to do. There was one teacher that she, I, I'm, I'm sure that she thought she was helping, but she gave me other kids schoolwork to mark. Um, and I would sit there and mark their math work. Right? And I enjoyed it as well. I enjoyed doing the marking of the math work. But um and that was uh, that was a fun thing for an autistic kid. Like it was great doing that. Um, that wasn't great for building relationships with other children. Um, that, that you know that didn't really go down well. Um, but certainly as a kid, I had a lot of those things going on. About seven eight years ago, I started to get quite overwhelmed and burnt out with work. And uh, I had a small daughter, a new baby, and we started to notice that her brain was quite different. That she was doing different things to her peers. And we did wonder, oh, maybe there's something there. And this was before I got diagnosed. And, and I'd read a lot of books on it. And I thought at that point, uh, if I'm really going to understand my kids, I should go and understand myself first. You know, I should go and work out what's going on with my brain if I'm to better understand their brains. And that's what led me to um, go to my GP in, in England, the NHS National Health Service. We have a, a, a local general practitioner that you can go to. I went to my GP, explained to him how I was feeling, how I was struggling. Like there were some struggles at work with communicating with people and understanding people and being overwhelmed and stuff like that. And he was super good. He listened to all of it and he referred me to um, some specialists. And then it's a long process. There's a lot of waiting time as well in between. And, And then there's a lot of assessments and tests that you go through. I went through 
dozens of written tests, uh, hours and hours of interviews with um, practitioners, uh, different practitioners so that they could compare notes. Um, I did this one test, which you can do online. Uh, it's like a social intelligence test um, where they flash up eyes of different people, just the eyes, and they give you four uh, emotions and you have to say which emotion the eyes are having. And that was horrible. It, like, it was so difficult and it took me so much time to do that. Um, I hated that test. Like it actually made me feel very uncomfortable doing that test. Um, but they did all that and they interviewed my wife, who at the time still, you know, was like, I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. And out of the end of it, you know, after, oh, and then uh, it's worth, you, you touched on it, but what happens is you get all these different scores in all these different places. And then if that crosses a threshold, then they can determine a conclusion. So it's not, as you say, a blood test. It's not, it's not even one gene that you turn it on or turn it off and you are or aren't autistic. Once you cross the threshold into this percentile, then you're, then they can make their conclusion. And for me, that conclusion, I can read it out. It says the neurodevelopmental service multidisciplinary team were able to conclude that you meet the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum condition. You fulfill the level one severity level. You would previously have been described as having Asperger's syndrome. So that's what I came away from it with and the doctors then as well they're super good they say um do you want counseling or do you want any is there anything else that you want to explore with this is there medication that you feel that you want to explore but that was enough for me to be like ah okay that tells me something about my brain and then as time have gone on I've had two more kids uh, and one of our kids um a little boy is amazing he now now he's grown up he's very much present in uh, much more obvious autism traits than I have or you know to the point where he's very obviously autistic in 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 that way and it and I'm so glad that I went through that process because I feel how I feel about it and how I feel about my son how I feel about my son's future has all been made more uh sensible to me having you know gone down that and understood it about myself I know that my autism is very different to his autism Every person's autism is, is very different. There's a phrase, you've met one person with autism, you've met just one person with autism, you know. But I feel uh, more equipped to, um, I guess, take the emotional uh, roller coaster of, of all that. Sure. I've gone so, off on a weird tangent you, here. You haven't at all. <laughs> you, you're, you're so self-conscious about the fact that you just ramble on and you have no idea how succinctly and organized your thoughts are. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll let you know if you go off the beaten path. Don't worry about it. Okay, um, I have a tendency to do that, I think, a lot more than you're going to. Uh, there's two things that I want to dig into a little bit further, and one of which I think is a really, really big one. It's when you said, well, my son obviously has autism. And I, that's probably a reaction you've gotten more than once where, like you said, it's a level one severity, which used to be called Asperger's, which is no longer called Asperger's, more for political reasons than anything that we probably don't need to go into. Let's just say it has something to do with Nazis, from my understanding. Other than that, not going to go into it. Yeah. But for anybody that knows the world of neurodivergence and autism, and I didn't know this until recently, I thought that when you said somebody has Asperger's, that meant you have a mild form of autism and low severity, which it does. But it's it's, it's there's a lot of political connotations just like there are with confederate generals that are on the names of schools and once i learned that i'm like i had no idea so now i don't use it but it's just it's not as common knowledge as people might think um, but what i wanted to point out was more this idea that you said it's obvious 
And I think for somebody that were to see anything that you put out into the world, whether it's one of your award speeches or you talking about editing, it's not obvious. You wouldn't say, like, oh, pff, clearly that guy's autistic. So let's talk a little bit more about people that don't really understand neurodivergence to understand how wide the spectrum is. Because immediately, at least for a lot of people that are my age, maybe not younger uh, generations, but for my age, as soon as you say autism, the first thing you think is, well, Rain Man, right? The guy could barely function. He counts matchsticks, but he can't function in society. And there's so much more to it than that. So talk to me a little bit more about the just the sheer width and depth of the spectrum and the different levels of severity so people can better understand that, like you said, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so um, the spectrum thing is really uh, fascinating because people see it as this like lines, like autistic, not autistic, where are you on that spectrum? Me being autistic, actually, I find no problem in understanding 10-dimensional spectrums. <laughs> like the, 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 the idea of things working in multi-dimensions is not difficult for my brain to, to interpret. And that's kind of closer to what it is. And so you can imagine that, and, and there's some good, I've got some uh, bits written down here. You can imagine a level of uh, the, the spectrum is is how verbal you are, how you use language. Another is how you can use eye contact. Another is how you use your special interests. Another is uh, how you react to sensory uh, things. Uh, another one is like literal mindedness or, or use of metaphor. So all of these different things can can um, have different uh, meters on them, you know. So you can imagine the spectrum in, in at least those two dimensions, you know, the, the, the various different ones and then how up and down they can go. And interestingly, like this is, this blew my mind, but when I got my diagnosis through, they can compare each of those to uh, the, the average, right? The average person. And even though my total pushed me over the limit or over the threshold, there were um, categories within that where I was less autistic than the average person, <laughs> which was just like, wow, like to, 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 to cross the threshold of autistic to actually be less autistic than the average person in this one. Like, if you saw me with an average person, you'd think I was less autistic than them. That was like, wow, that's that's a mad way that that all adds up and, and combines. But what I do know is that there's a lot of things, uh, uh, once I learned about it, that do make sense to me, right, and that do chime with me. Um, here's, here's a perfect one, actually. My love for film. My love for films couldn't be more of an autistic love for films uh, if, if you were to write it into a, into a film. Before I knew I was autistic, I was obsessive about seeing everything. Like I would go to the cinema, I would have to see every film that came out in the cinema. And like, like I remember going to the cinema four times in one day uh, uh, when, when I was at university. There is something about the cinema, which is this like sensory experience. You're in a dark room with a massive screen sound it's depriving you of all of those interactions and you're just like taking in this picture this makes sense now i sit in the front row i went to see thor at the imax like last week the new thor film and i sat in the front row and it was my favorite seat to be in and it's funny because no one else wanted to sit there it was like a, a, a special screening and there were these two seats right front. perfect now that i learn oh i've I have a neurodivergent brain or I, I, I'm autistic or, or, or however you want to frame it. Now that I know that, I'm like, ah, oh, that explains why I like doing that and other people perhaps don't. So seeing the films, having there's a thing about special interests uh, for autistic people 
where they can get obsessed, but they can also be very thorough about how they want to know everything about a certain topic. And I feel that I have that with film. <laughs> I remember when I was a teenager, someone made a comment about how sad it would be for someone who goes to the cinema on their own. Right? I remember like teenagers like saying, oh, it must be so sad to go to cinema on your own. I love going to cinema on it's my own. It's the best. I don't want to go with oh my God, <laughs> it's the best. I would much prefer to go on my own, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah, I don't need anyone with me. I'm I'm perfectly happy. And it was funny, like, when I started dating uh, my now wife, like, that I would just, Friday night, well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to cinema on my own to watch a film. I love that. But that's, um, but that, I think, that makes it feel obvious in hindsight. Oh, that makes sense. But now I'm also like, oh, that's clearly part of that, um, how I relate to people, how I, uh, feel best like too many people or, or or whatever can be very difficult so that now makes sense in my job let's look at my job that there's uh there's lateral thinking when it comes to editing there's uh, a librarian uh, element to it you know uh, uh, how you file everything how you log everything how you store everything how you categorize everything um there's the memory element to it like i, I feel like i have a I felt like I had a normal memory, but now I'm like, oh, you've got a different kind of memory to other people. The way you remember rushes, what you've watched, is is actually fundamentally different to what someone else will see when they watch those rushes. I remember practically everything. I, I mean, I think that I can find very quickly. Well, here's a, here's a great example. I got a phone call yesterday from a director that I worked with, and we worked on something together in 2012, and it was a particular shot of a sky, like some clouds. And he's like, do you still have that shot of that sky? And I had it within 10 minutes or within two minutes. Like I was just like, yeah, I know where that is. And I went on my computer and I went into my hard drive and I found exactly which folder it was and pulled it out and, and, and sent it off to him. And that was something that we worked on in 2012. I feel like I'm an autodidact, right? I like to learn. I like to teach myself. Um, I'm obsessed with it. Like I, I always want to learn a new piece of software or, or learn about a topic or learn, you know, read a book on a subject of more often than not the um, non-fiction books hyper-focused like I remember when I got the scripts for Chernobyl 300 pages of scripts and I read them in one sitting you know I just sat down and breezed through them in one sitting and then I did it again in the second sitting like just got through them that's the scripts were fantastic that's not because the scripts were fantastic <laughs> it's because my brain is 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 directly wired up to that kind of thing and I'm just extremely lucky that I found filmmaking and post-production and I've managed to get a job and make a living from it because all of those things that I do lend themselves so perfectly to to the job that I do um, let me let me ask you this I want, I'm going to stop you for a second yeah, yeah, um, and you use the word lucky and what I'm not going to do is go on my soapbox about luck versus creating your own luck and creating opportunities. That's not the context that I want to talk about luck specifically. But I want to see if you can relate to this phrase the way that I can relate to this phrase. You said that I was lucky to have found film and post-production. Would you say that it's more accurate, even if it's harder to understand, that maybe editing and post-production found you? Wow, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I certainly started out, I, I dabbled in the art department, I dabbled with the ADs, I dabbled with the producers, production department. And then I remember going into the edit suite and 
very quickly I was like, oh, this is my favorite place to be. This is the best place to be. Um, I go to set, you know, I, I, I spent some time on, on, you know, one of the best sets going right now on, on, on Star Wars and or set, you know, I went and visited the set there. And as much as like, I love doing the job and stuff like that, I was like, I want to get back to my quiet room and sit on my own and do this thing on my own. Um, so yes, I did. I, I think I definitely did gravitate towards it, but, but I was lucky um, to get into the film side of things. I'm not from a, from a film family. I'm not from like, I had no idea. I, I, I got very, uh, it was, it was almost like a raffle ticket when I was at uh, school the careers teacher allocated everyone a, a, a two-week work placement and she allocated me um TV production company. Before I wanted to become a filmmaker, I actually wanted to become an architect. And I think an architect might have been even also very suited to um, the autistic mind. I, I, I want to I go in a little bit on that though. Um, so uh, my brother works at um, JP Morgan, like a big, a big bank. And he told me, He's like, oh, do you know at JP Morgan, we actually have a whole HR department that specializes in uh, employing autistic people because for some jobs, they're better, <laughs> right? They're better. And I've got this brilliant quote. This is from um, Anthony Pastilio, who's a global head of JP Morgan's Autism at Work program. And he said, uh, we have found that autistic people have an incredible approach to problem solving. They're very granular and see things in completely different ways to neurotypical employees. In roles with easily measurable outcomes, JP Morgan has found that people on the spectrum can considerably outperform neurotypical people. In one technology role, the bank found that employees in the program could complete uh, tasks in a queue between 90% and 140% more productively than their neurotypical colleagues and with zero errors, which is almost unheard of. That's fascinating to me. The fact that um, not only can we have these traits to be good at a job, but we can be valued specifically for that. And anyone who therefore, and, and we all know this, I think, in post-production, but I think we definitely know this. Like you can have a, a, a colleague, an assistant editor, and they do not have to be the, the neurotypical, uh, you know, uh, most popular kid at school type. They need to be someone who is really, really, really good at media management, you know, and 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 that's what we strive for. There's um, I found a VFX company that I've been working with in Los Angeles called Exceptional Minds, and they're an academy that then become a studio, and the academy is for um, you know, young people with autism who can go and learn VFX, and then they graduate up and they become members of the studio, and they and they provide VFX shots. They're a VFX vendor. Um, and I think that they are very well suited to certain tasks. Uh, you, you find some people, you know, if they had the idea of um, of Roto or something like that, they'd be like, oh, I don't want to sit in Roto a shop for two hours. And then there's other people who might love to Roto a shop for two hours. And, and I think that that's something that we should, in film, start to realize that we can, you know, we can leverage these people and we can, we can value these people. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. 
Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo-Driven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt Matt. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, I clearly would agree with all of that. And as soon as you talked about JP Morgan having this entire division of HR that was not only advocating for people with what the outside world calls a disability, and they saw a super ability, they want to, they see the value in what they bring and they want to bring more of them in because there are specific things that suit their needs. My first reaction, just being totally honest, was wouldn't it be nice if Hollywood gave a shit? Because Hollywood <laughs> doesn't have HR departments and at least, unless you work for the studio at the executive level, we're just know, cogs right? that they hire project from project to project. And anybody that works on the crew side, we don't have HR. There is no such thing. I can't go to an HR department and say, we should build this advocacy department to hire more autistic people to be assistant editors and media manage because they're like, well, you know, we just hire show by show by show. And they don't have a post-production department cutting TV and films for Sony or Warner Brothers or Disney or whatever. So it's infinitely more complex, but I just, I wish that more people had this mindset of not just saying, well, you know, according to at least here in the States, the ADA, the American Disabilities Act, we're going to have to accommodate. It's like if we're talking about <laughs> disability, you, you, when you talk about disability anytime with people, they always think person in wheelchair. If you're disabled, you're in a wheelchair, you get the, the good parking, right? That's kind of where your mind goes. And that's what the word disability means to a lot of people. It's changing with the younger generations in a good way. But at least people that are maybe slightly younger than me and older, disability meant you're in wheelchair, which is just the dumbest thing ever. But if we can learn to not only advocate for or accommodate, but actually see the value and say, no, we really want to encourage this. That's the mentality that I think we need to bring into the entertainment industry because it brings a tremendous amount of value. And there's a person I want to call very, very quickly because you said we need to start thinking about how to do this. There's actually somebody that it never even registered to me until just now to bring this up in this call. Um, but everybody knows John Travolta. What most people don't know is that his brother, Joey Travolta, has been maybe the number one advocate 
in the world in the entertainment industry for helping people that have neurodiversity issues, physical disabilities, mental disabilities, specifically train to enter the entertainment industry. He has a program that's called Inclusion Films. Uh, I've been friends oh, with wow. him for years because when I screened my documentary, it won like all the major awards at what was the Bakersfield Film Festival. And people are like, what the hell is the Bakersfield Film Festival? It's not a top tier one, but all of the films had something to do with either disabilities or the people working on them had some form of disability. And he and I met years ago, we became friends and he has this program. And it, this conversation just reminded me of that, which now tells me, got to get him on the list so we can do these interviews back to back. But the kind of the, the point being is I think it goes beyond how do we accommodate how do we deal with this people? So, you know, we put in a ramp so somebody with a wheelchair can get to our second floor office, right? That's much different than there's a specific value this person can bring even more so than somebody that's quote unquote normal. And that's what I want to help anybody listening identify. I can already think of a multitude of people that I know personally that really struggle with their neurodivergence and are always working to figure out Listen, the, the, you have this. Like, we can't just say, let's figure out a way to not have it. This is who you are. It's part of your identity. How do we harness the good things about it and find the right places, the right jobs, the right teams, so that all of a sudden you become the superpower and you become their secret weapon versus this is a liability? I don't have the answer to this question, but maybe you can help me workshop it for how we can better help people that see this as a disability realize maybe it's only a disability in the context that I'm with the wrong people. I have the wrong job role, it's the wrong type of project. How do we do this? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you feel this way as well. Like with disability, we should also make sure that we've got these ramps into these cutting rooms, make sure that we're uh, accommodating for people in wheelchairs. I, I, oh, I by the way, that should have just been, I shouldn't have even been um, yeah, something yeah, you yeah. had to say. So I'm very glad, you, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm no, saying no. I want to go far beyond that. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. And I, and I know that and feel that. I, I, I think that um, what's important here in a way, I think is for, uh, I, I, I don't think, I think we're a long, long way. And I think there's other things almost that do need to be dealt with first, like wheelchair ramps and so on need to be in place before we start to uh, uh, um, install accommodations for people that, I don't really have a, um, what I would consider disability that needs to be um, accommodated. And I feel that there are people who do and we should be accommodating them. Uh, so what I hope that this also almost does is it speaks more to the person. So rather than speaking to the institution about what they need to do, I want to speak to the person who is neurodivergent and encourage them to come and work with us because we will value you. Like we will find uh, things that you can do that will really help us and you could end up really good at it. And I would also say you'll probably really enjoy it because I really enjoy it. And um, <clears throat> there are, you know, I do have like hopes for the future that um, just as on my call sheet now, there is an uh, anti-sexual discrimination phone line, there is an anti-bullying phone line, there is an anti-racism phone line. Um, I hope that there will be a neuro diversity memo where people can learn more about neurodiversity i i made a short film um in the last year and we had a neuro uh, we had an autistic actress um and one of the things that we sent out with our call sheet was this neurodiversity memo that kind of clued everyone in on what her autism meant for the production and how we could all get the most out of it and and what things you might not have thought of 
that you could learn. And I feel that that would be great if we could just have those things in place. A little bit of basic training, especially to hire up people, like just as JP Morgan are, it's not just JP Morgan, Google, Microsoft, um, uh, there are lots of companies that have realized the, the value here and that they train people to better understand neurodiversity. I think that could be happening at the top. I think the interview process is uh, a particular minefield for autistic people. And I think that, it, or and neurodivergent people, how do they navigate an interview? Zoom is doing all sorts of crazy things with eye contact and, 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 and how we communicate with one another. And I would love it if we could have more of our, our jobs especially that could be more qualification-based, it would be great if there was more of a, and I know that, you know, AVID certified training and stuff like that exists. It would be great if there was more put on that. I, I, I would almost rather have someone who is autistic who wouldn't be able to have a conversation in an interview present me with a, a certificate that says they know how to script sync. You know, if they, if they can present me with that, we don't need to have the interview. That's fantastic. I'd love to have you, uh, I'd love to work with you and to have you as part of that team. So uh, uh, an emphasis on qualifications for people that don't pr- present well in interviews could could help. But I think just, you know, a general understanding of it, I'm still learning about it. But the more I learn about it, I, I genuinely feel, as, as I said earlier, the more, the more I feel I can connect with people that are not neurodivergent, people that are neurotypical. But I, I would encourage everyone, and I know like you encourage everyone and, and you encourage me, listen to you, to, to get the most out of your brain, to learn the most about your brain, learn what it is that you like, learn what it is that you don't like. Uh, I talk, can I talk a bit about um, some of the things that I do? Like on Chernobyl, I found um, transcendental meditation. And transcendental, and, and I did it all through Chernobyl. I don't do it so much now, um, but I did it all through that. And I would do it in the morning. I would do it in the evening. It fitted into my routine. And it was so perfectly uh, wired to work with my brain. I tried other types of meditation. I tried um, mindfulness and stuff like that. Didn't work for me. As soon as I got transcendental meditation down and did a course in that, wow, it was like, this is amazing. And I would encourage it might not work for you, but I would encourage everyone to go out and find what does work for you. You know, um, you'll you're, you're, uh, you're, love this one. This year, so on, on that job, it was Transcendental Meditation. Um, on the job that I'm on at the moment, Netflix job, um, I uh, ran a marathon this year. I trained and I ran a, ran a marathon. So every three times a week, I'd get up and I'd go running. And running for me is a, is a great way to get my brain to chill out and, and, and calm down. I know the same for you. I know exercise is such a big part of your life. Um, finding those things that work well for your brain is 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 so valuable. So, so that's something that, you know, I think should be encouraged. Yeah, I can, I've got uh, at least 17 different follow-ups and questions because like you, <laughs> I do like to go deep on very granular specific areas. Um, yeah, to go way back in the conversation, the first thing I will acknowledge is there are so many things that you mentioned that you experienced that I swear to God that you and I are twin brothers. And anybody that's looking at the video version of this podcast is questioning <laughs> twins separated at birth, possible, yeah, right? right? Uh, obviously the, the hairlines are very, very similar. But one of those that I can very much 
relate to actually, I mean, pretty much all of them. Um, but when you said that they can be very obsessed about certain subjects, I'm very much obsessed about certain subjects, very much an autodidact, have spent exorbitant amounts of money learning all types of different skills, whether it's specific to building this business, building this coaching program, just learning other things that I want to learn. American Ninja Warrior, always a joke that I make when people say, what do you do outside of work? What are your hobbies? I say, what's a hobby? I have obsessions. I don't have hobbies. Ninja Warrior is one of those that, again, factors into providing my brain with the oxygen and the neurochemicals that it needs to stay balanced. But one of the things that I want to go into as it somewhat relates to this idea of advocating for versus accommodating, et cetera, um, you had said that I don't really think we need to accommodate so much. I'm not going to disagree, but I'm going to add a layer to that when it comes to helping people that are not neurodivergent better understand how to get the most out of people. And I'm going to give you a very specific example, and I'm not going to name a name, but I guarantee when this person listens to this podcast and they will listen, they're going to be like, oh, my God, he's talking about me. So I have worked with somebody where one of their greatest struggles with ADHD is executive functioning, which is a very common struggle for somebody with ADHD. And for anybody that doesn't know, executive functioning is essentially a fancy word to say my ability to make decisions and prioritize. So if somebody says, I need you to do these 10 different things and walks away, their brain shuts down. I can't do any of this because I have no idea how to put it in the right order or how to prioritize. And a version of I don't want to call it accommodating, but it's in the same conversation of learning how to both accommodate, but also collaborate and get the most out of somebody that's in the situation. If I were their supervisor, let's say that they're an assistant editor and I'm an editor. That's something I want to learn about them. And rather than saying, here are all these tasks, do whatever you want. I want to take it upon myself to be able to collaborate with them and accommodate and say, listen, I know this is a lot to do. I know you're really overwhelmed, so let me help you. I want you to just work on this thing right now, and I want you to let me know when you're done, knowing that they're really good at that one task, and I'm going to leave them to do it and not knock on their door every five minutes and say, hey, I know you asked you to do that thing right now. I need you to do that. Here's three other tasks. Just figure it out. Right. That's just like kryptonite to me, including I mean, that's why I built an entire program to help people learn how to better focus and prioritize because I have that problem. So I've developed an immense support system to solve it. But that's an example for me of learning how to accommodate slash collaborate and better understand people with neurodivergence. That's fascinating. Executive functioning and, and specifically for um, ADD or ADHD type. Uh, it's very, um, very common. It's why people oh, say, well, so somebody with ADHD is all over the place. Because if you give them a multitude of options, their brain stops. I can't choose. It's something called analysis paralysis. It's the bane of my existence. I'll give you a, I'll give you a 30 second version of this that a lot of my students already know this story, but I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the show. A couple of years, my microwave broke. And my wife said, hey, the microwave doesn't work anymore. Okay, no problem, I'll look into it and I'll get another one. Weeks went by, weeks. And my wife was getting increasingly frustrated. Well, I haven't done enough of the research and I need to figure out the best model. And, you know, I need to look into this and that and got a subscription to consumer reports to get the best model possible. She's like, okay, no worries. An hour later, guess what? She came home with a microwave. She's like, <laughs> I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to be able to warm up our food. And my first reaction was, oh, okay, that makes sense. But I wouldn't have bought this one and it doesn't have enough cubic footage and the wattage is a little bit low. So here's the thing. We were both right. We had a microwave that warmed our food, but it sucked and it took forever to warm up our food and a year later it broke. 
So at that point, I said, all right, let's do this a second time. We need a microwave. I'm giving myself 60 minutes to find one. From this point in 60 minutes later, I will have either ordered one or I will have bought one. So I gave myself 60 minutes of focused concentration to figure out which is the best microwave and I bought it and now we have one and it lasts and it's great. But the point being that unencumbered analysis, paralysis and making decisions and prioritizing is very, very difficult for me and other people that uh, deal with ADD and ADHD. Do you need a deadline? Oh, very much so. That's why I teach time blocking. Time blocking because I need deadlines and I don't mean I need a deadline in two weeks. I need a deadline every 60 minutes. So if my entire calendar and people that have seen my calendar, they've literally, I'm like, you need to be sitting down to look at how I manage my life. Because to most people that are uh, neurotypical, it's like, this is way too overwhelming. But if I don't have it, then I'm overwhelmed. If I look at a white calendar, I do nothing. If I have a calendar that's seven different colors, that has a time block every hour that tells me this is exactly what to do and this is how much time you have to do it, I am in heaven and I am super productive. So I've taken what was a kryptonite and turned it into a superpower with a digital support system. I love that. I love that. The idea of needing a deadline, though, is so foreign to me. Like, I I would blow my university lecturers minds because my work was always in on the first day that we could hand it in <laughs> the first day that we are the pole that's one area in. we are polar opposites totally yeah, polar opposites yeah. yeah i was like the first like oh ah oh, this is a perfect example my taxes are you know you know the tax filing day that you have to hand in your taxes in in england i think it's like april the 5th everyone has to hand it or they have to do a certain thing by January the 31st or something like that. And it's so, it blows my mind on Facebook when everyone's like, oh, do my taxes, oh, do my taxes. I'm like, oh, oh. And then there's the people that get annoyed at being fined for being late at their taxes. They're like, oh, I was late, so they find me. And I'm like, but you had eight months to hand it in. Like, <laughs> like, like why, why? You know that you could have done it any time in that eight months. And actually... Like it's it's mental, but it makes so much sense. Mine is I'm that douchebag. I'm that you can hate me now. Uh, I'm that guy who has it in on the first day. Like, and and I'm so glad that this is that this is done. Tick this off. Let, um, let me ask you this before we go anywhere else. I want to better understand this because this is fascinating. Because yeah. everything you've said up until now, I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's me. And right now, I'm like, could not be more different than me. Alien. So Alien, the, my yeah. version of this story is that I amend or extend my taxes every single year because I never get right. done by the 15th. And now my accountant sends me one message in early March confirming you're doing an extension again. Yep. Talk to you in <laughs> July. And it's July yeah. and I'm just starting to gather my paperwork because I know that the ultimate uh, deadline is in like September. And what most people don't know, at least in the States, it doesn't cost you money to extend your taxes. You just fill out a form, send it, you buy yourself four extra months, which again, the absurdity of why do I need four months to do four hours of work? That's just the way that my brain functions. But here's what I wanna better understand. <laughs> When you aren't given a deadline and somebody says your taxes are due or you have a cut or you have to write a paper, whatever it is, what's the thought that compels you to do it right away? That's a good question. Um, it is funny that, and I don't, think, I'm not, I don't think you would be either. I think we'd be the same on it. I'm never bored. I've always, I cannot ex understand boredom. I cannot understand doing nothing. I've we are very much the same, yes. 
that's the same. Um, I've always got something to do. Like, so, but what is it? Uh, what, so, sorry, your question is, if I don't have a deadline, what compels me to do it? Yeah, so Basically. let me give you, I mean, you're obviously busy. You're working on high profile television shows. You've got a family, you've got multiple children. In my mind, yeah. the thought is always, I have other things that are more important to me than my taxes. At some point, it's a necessary evil that I have to do it, but I wanna focus on the things that I believe are more important and more of a priority as long as humanly possible until I know that if I don't do it, I'm literally gonna face a fine. What forces you to say, I'm just gonna do it now? Okay, I think there might be something more in it that is worth mentioning. I. And this is something that people could take away from your podcast. You know, this is the kind of stuff that people list your podcast for. I um, purposefully try and schedule empty time, like just empty time. Like when I finished on Chernobyl, and bear in mind the, the success of Chernobyl, I could have, you know, done a lot of things. I took four months off. I just took four months off. I was like, oh, I'm going to have four months off. Before Chernobyl, just before Chernobyl, I'd had four months off. Right. And I think, and I'm planning after this job, I've had a particularly big run of, of uh, silliness where I've overlapped some jobs. But after this job, there's, there's an intended break period. And I would encourage um, all of your, your followers and, and, and people to, to, to try and schedule in those gaps. There has never been in my career a detriment to that. Right. People were like, oh, if you don't, work at this period like you know you fall out of quite the opposite because of the nature of, of film productions often lasting uh, on the jobs i do six months to a year if you took six months to a year off that's just like you you went and did a different job one other job you know so you can easily get back in sync with people so i would encourage people to take time off and i think that it's that that then does free up my time to allow me to not be overwhelmed so that I can do my taxes. But I still don't. I want, I still, I, th you this know is what? fascinating. I, I want to keep digging into question. this. <laughs> no, but go ahead. I think it's just. I think it's just the way the way we're wired, though. I think it's the way that we're wired. I don't like your your question. What we can't. I don't feel that we can answer each other's questions. It, right. Why do I do it? Because I'm autistic. Why do you do it? Because of your ADHD. It's well, here, I'm going to add to that, though. I can extrapolate a little bit deeper and further why I do it that way. Yeah. Because the other question I ask of essentially everything, I've made it a habit to ascribe this question to anything I do. Is this the easiest this can be? Uh -huh. I want everything to be as easy as possible. Now, my life is very complex and the work that I do is very difficult. But everything I'm doing, the location of the time block on the calendar, the period of the year this is the easiest I've been able to make it. So in my mind, if I'm in the, like for example, when taxes were due this year, I was just on the tail end of finishing up season five of Cobra Kai, completely and totally exhausted. And I knew I needed time in between to do absolutely nothing. And I thought to myself, this is gonna be a really crappy place to have to deal with my taxes because it's one of the least favorite things that I do on the planet. I have to gather all the things and scan them and put together a spread. It's just a pain, but it's much easier to do that same four hours of work in July when I finished up everything else that I need to do and I'm more relaxed. So that to me is the easier version, which is why I amend. I spotted something in that though. I love that bit with the spreadsheets and the scanning and the receipts. Uh, okay, really so now I get it. You see, you get enjoyment out of it. To me, it's I dread. I enjoy it. 
Now I get, you're like, why would I defer something that I enjoy so much? Yes, you said the pain. You said the pain. And I'm like, oh, no, I enjoy it. I actually like it. It actually soothes me. It's a form of, ah, Mm -hmm. I can do this. Polar opposite for me. Right. But hang on. So so we've got something there. Because then that would suggest that my brain might, I, in another life, I might have gone into accountancy. In another, in in my brother's life, he's gone into banking at J.P. Morgan, right? So, um, I think that that it is that. So maybe that's maybe that's part of it. And I've heard you say this on your podcast before. Finding something you love, you know, is 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 really important for general mental health and and, and work and, and motivation. And I think because I like that thing, that's probably how I how I do that easily. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense to me now why you would gravitate to doing it right away. Because to you, it's like I, if somebody said, here's a free pint of ice cream. Oh, I'm going to wait as long as possible before I eat that. I, I'm just <laughs> like, I'm going to eat it now. Right. So I, I better understand that men- that mentality for sure. It's so painful for me. In fact, this is something I've even talked about a little bit in my program is that I have something that I call my week of pain. <laughs> There's a week that I just schedule every year where I do all the things I hate the most. Taxes are always in my week of pain because it's like this is all inevitable. It must be done. So rather than sprinkle all these awful things that I don't like during all the things I love, I'm just going to wake up Monday morning and I'm going to know that the next five days of my life are going to suck. Taxes are the top of that list. Hate doing that stuff. But what I love, and it's funny, we're really getting into something granular, but hey, that's what we do. One of the things that I found, and this is a really interesting strategy that my accountant pushes back on all the time. What I've done is I've given myself a reward for doing the stuff that I hate. And the reward is... I pay more into taxes than I should be. So I never owe taxes. So I know the faster that I get through my paperwork, the faster I get money back. Uh, I've given myself the dangling carrot. Otherwise, I wouldn't have my taxes done for the last seven years. But there's, and it's, we're not talking like, ooh, I've got $27 coming back. I make sure that I have thousands of dollars returned to me. That's what it takes for me to finish my paperwork. And even knowing that I have a healthy refund coming my way, I still extend to the last possible minute. It's like somebody, if somebody said to me, I'm going to pay you $5,000 for four hours of work. And all you have to do is scan W-2s and dig through some uh, power bills and gas bills and collect all of them onto a spreadsheet. That's it. Four hours of work, I'm going to pay you $5,000. And my response is, talk to me in four months because I don't want it. Like, that's the way that my brain works. So it's uh, it's fascinating how even though there's some very, very clear similarities, there are a lot of really interesting differences. And what I want to dig into a little bit further, which may not be quite directly in the, the neurodiversity or neurodivergence conversation, but I want to dig deeper into this idea of taking these long breaks. Because I know that it's not just a matter of, and th- this is more my pattern, and the reason I had this coaching program is because they often say you coach what you need to hear the most. <laughs> my default pattern with no boundaries, no safeguards, is I'm in a project, it consumes my entire life. It's the only thing I'm doing, crazy hyper-focus, I finish the project, and I recover. That's default setting. All the things that I teach and that I'm learning and everything else, those are the safeguards to make sure that I don't go to default. But for you, I know that from a very early age, you even have mentors that have said like, 
that's counterproductive. And even within the project, there needs to be balance. And I know that balance may not be the right word, but let's talk a little bit more about how you structure your time, both in between projects, but within a big project. Yeah, I see I see this all the time, especially in pace. People working late into the night, people struggling with, with work-life balance. I had this enlightening epiphany experience very early on when I worked for an incredible editor, um, mentor uh, and friend who just never did it. Just never did it. Just was always six o'clock, wrapping up, going. Director that we worked with a lot as well, wrapping up, going at six o'clock. That was it every day. And they they were winning BAFTAs. They were winning awards. You know, they, 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 they were making the best TV, like some of the TV that I watch. And I'm like, this is incredible. Um, so there is no direct connection between staying later and better work. There is no direct connection. Amen. As soon as I worked work that out, I was like six o'clock. I'm gone. Like I am gone. Um, I and I so heavily believe in that 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 I just I just finish up my day and I say to you know my colleagues go home. Like go, and and I remember that that editor that I worked for. He would come in and he would say go home. Like, you're worth more to me if you go home now. I want you to go home because then you will do better work. You know, your work will be better if you go home. So once you've learned that, you know, it's the same as, you know, once you learn something about your diet or once you learn something about uh, meditation or whatever, it's incredibly easy to live by once you fully believe in it. And I do fully believe in it. It's when you... Uh, don't believe in it or when you do believe you know but but it becomes a uh, it doesn't work i so fully believe in a better a better result a better like um that's something that i talk a lot about with my friends and my family and my colleagues and um, is 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 the 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 final net result right like if i do this 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 does it actually benefit me Here, here's the situation you're 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 there's some notes to do, right? Um, and you argue, you can argue over something or you can disagree with something. Is the argument actually going to get a better result at the end of it? My autistic brain is very good at cleaning very quickly. Is this argument worthwhile? Right? Is, is this discussion worthwhile? Is this, is this worth my time? And I can quite easily just walk away from something, you know, very quickly and move on to something else if there is not a, a, a net, a net positive to be gained from it. Um, and it's, it's, it's silly. Uh, uh, I suppose I make this mistake. This is probably, if anything, I make this mistake with my kids a lot. They do something, they ask me for something. Can I have this? Can I have this? And I respond to net benefit. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just give in. I give in to them far too easily. And maybe my net benefit is too short-sighted. Maybe I'm not looking far enough into into the future, even a week ahead to learn how, how that's going to affect their behavior. But, or maybe um, you just want to get some sleep. Well, yeah, but I, but I, but I, I am very net result orientated, I think. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for 
for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very I've, much the same way. I can, again, yeah. relate to everything you're saying about the, there's this, there's a very deep level of analysis that to, for anybody that doesn't get it, uh, specifically people in my family, i.e. my wife, like it's just, can we just do this thing? Like, but uh, I, I could draw entire charts. I could draw the paths and the lines and here's why we should make the decision and not this one. It's like, can we just do the thing? Like, really? So it's, I, I can understand like really weighing net benefits and this is, uh, and it's interesting because what I've learned over the last few years. And I wanna get back to this idea of the the value of your time and walking away and like the net result of it. But one thing that I wanna mention that I've learned and I'm basically just uh, you know exploiting the fact that I have you on this call and you can help me analyze this because I think few would understand this well, but I think you're actually gonna get this deeper than most people would. I had a really hard time making the transition and I'm still making it, but early on making the transition from the identity of I'm a film and television editor. It's all that I've ever done in my life. It's the only skill that I possess that's ever earned me money. People say, I'll give you money to do this thing. Everything else I had ever done that was an interest in me was just a hobby or just an obsession and a passion, right? So when I decided I don't wanna do that anymore and I wanna work in this area instead, huge identity crisis. But the biggest part was how do I, how do I reconcile the fact that I've wasted over 20 years of my life doing this thing that no longer applies? And then two or three years ago, it really hit me. What I'm doing now as a podcaster, as a writer, and most specifically as a coach, is I'm still an editor, but now I edit people's lives and their conversations and their challenges and their problems. Those are all of my dailies. And what I found that I'm really, really good at, and it's, it's hard for me to articulate and understand it, which is why I wanna get your perspective. And I've had a multitude of students where they have, they'll just watch this in amazement. And I'm like, I don't get it. How does everybody not see this? But somebody will tell their story. Here's my challenge. They'll ramble for like 15 minutes. And to everybody else, it's like, would you get to the point? And what I can do in 30 seconds is I can say, all right, so what you said is this, this, and this. I totally understand all that. And it sounds like your challenge right now is here. And I think the next most important thing for you to focus on is doing this one thing that you can do in 30 minutes. And everybody's like, it's like a magic trick. I'm like, doesn't everybody see it? It seems so obvious. But I realized that that's what made me a really good editor. And it's now what makes coaching something that I enjoy so much. But it's almost so effortless for me that I feel like I'm cheating. Yeah, right. Well, here's, here's something that you'll relate to definitely. I One of the things I've learned mostly post-diagnosis is how important it is to take people with me. I will often, when I'm editing, see 
five steps ahead. And we could move this scene here, we could delete this scene, we could change this line here, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this, it'd be better, right? If I present that to the execs, they're gonna be like, what the f is this? Like, like this is this, like, can you can we go back? You know, and, and it won't work. And it will if anything, it will it will it will get their heckers up and and, and it, it will be counterproductive. The net goal will be worse if I go there that quickly. It's really, really, really important to take those steps together, to go on that journey together so that you can make those understandings together. So I really, I have all of these like ideas in my head and where I want to go, but I make sure that I take people with me. And more importantly, something else that I've learned is when I do that, we end up in an even better place because that person that I'm working with has ideas as well, which could make the idea that I've got even better. So um, by going on that journey together, by, 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 by rowing that boat together, you find a better place, you know, than if I was just like, oh, I know where I want to go with this. And so, I, so I really do try and slow that part of my brain down or that part of my process down to make sure that I go with the people that I'm collaborating with. And also that that's not just for their benefit. Uh, the, 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 the end goal is, is, is way better for everyone, I feel. Yeah, and I would say that that is good advice for anybody it doesn't matter if you are dealing with neurodiversity or otherwise. It doesn't matter if you're an editor, composer, writer, director. I think a lot of creative people in general just have that tendency to like just blurt out the whole vision, but most people aren't seeing the vision and they can't play eight separate uh, moves of chess to get where you are in your head. And I think that a lot of times creates a lot of miscommunication during the collaborative process. <laughs> so that's one thing that I've had to learn how to do as well is just slow down and say, all right, I'm pretty sure I see the next eight moves on the chessboard. I'm going to present the first two. I'm going to get a sense of, do they agree with these moves? Great. Let's try the move further down the road. Pretty confident five, six, and seven are coming. Oh, their idea for six is different than move six was for me. That's interesting. Let me try that. Oh, okay. So we're essentially going the same direction I thought, but point eight in this eight-point strategy that I had, it's actually better now because I interjected somebody into the conversation, which is why I've yeah. learned to listen a lot more than I speak, both as a coach and an editor and a podcaster. Because one of the first pieces of feedback I got very early onto the podcast, and it's still a challenge to this day, it's a challenge at this moment, is that I interview people and I talk the whole time. Yeah, you just- I would get that feedback, they'd say, this would have been a really fascinating interview had you actually let the person talk. I was like, oh, shit, you're right. I still struggle with that. I've gotten better at it, but I've had to learn how to just slow things down and interject other people into the conversation. And as an editor or any creative professional, this is absolutely vital to being great at what you do when you collaborate. Yeah. Yeah, listen, yeah, listening. But but you're very listenable, Zach. That's part of the problem. People uh, <laughs> relish in relish in listening to you and choose to listen to you. Um, I, I I I mentioned before we started that I'm very aware of how much I can ramble on and talk, and I know that you'll probably want to wrap up soon. I do have another quote um, that I read very recently, and it's not ADD centered, and it's not um, uh, autism centered. This is dyslexia centered, and even more interesting, like I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that, that there's this whole world of neurodiversity. Uh, but this is this is quite lovely. This has come out of um, Cambridge University only in the last couple of weeks uh, from Dr. Helen Taylor, who um, is uh, doing a lot of work, and, and you can find her on Twitter and stuff like that. This is a lovely, a lovely thing that, that she wrote. Um, 
A deficit-centered view of dyslexia isn't telling the whole story. We believe that the areas of difficulty experienced by people with dyslexia result from a cognitive trade-off between exploration of new information and exploitation of existing knowledge, with the upside being an explorative bias that could explain enhanced abilities observed in certain realms like discovery, invention, and creativity. That blew my mind. That is saying that um, dyslexic people have this untapped uh, gold mine of discovery, invention, and creativity that is hardwired into their brains because of this trade-off that, that they've gone through. And I think, you know, if there's anything that I am trying to take from my own journey with it, and especially in you know, relation to my, to my little boy um, and to his future, is just to try and embrace everything about it, you know, and, and not to dismiss any of the difficulties or actual disabilities that people do have. But um, to try and embrace the, uh, the, the 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 brilliance in there, and if 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 you're holding your optimize yourself and, and and stuff like that goes anywhere, surely like um, it it is to do with us all understanding ourselves and understanding our absolutely. Brains. I mean, embracing our true potential is the core of what we do, and I don't care if you have a disability or multiple disabilities, and spoiler alert, you do, because everybody does. Every single person has a disability, and I help people recontextualize and stop focusing on what they can't do and focus on what they can do, and what the, the first thing that came to mind, there's two things that came to mind, you read the quote. The first of which is a little bit of background that you may not even know. It's not a secret. It's just not something I talk much about, uh, but my father is a specialist in working with children that, that have the severest forms of dyslexia. So most people at the dinner table were talking about what happened at work or this or that. I was hearing about the way that children's brains are wired. Like those were dinner table conversations was uh, understanding what dyslexia is. And again, this just reinforces this, the idea that when you look at somebody that has dyslexia, oh, they're disabled, they can't read. Oh, no, 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 no. The vast majority of people with dyslexia are far superior in intelligence. They process information in a different way, in a different order. And it's not they swap their B's and their D's and words are backwards, it's far more complex. But the point being is, like you said, their brain is hardwired to see things differently and not the way that we are all used to processing them. But there is an immense amount of potential that most people don't tap into because they focus on what they can't do. But your quote specifically about this idea of, you know, the there's only so much room for, you know, the things that don't work because so much uh, energy is put into the things that do. It reminded me of a quote that I haven't thought of for years from my documentary. And it was just this little girl that was six or seven years old that had met the, the subject of my documentary. His name was Christopher Rush. And he was quadriplegic, had no use of his arms or his legs because of muscular dystrophy, but extremely bright. And she said, and it's just like the seven-year-old encapsulation of the same quote that you wrote. Well, God put so much time into Chris's brains, he didn't have any time or energy left over for his legs, which I think is the perfect encapsulation of your quote. It just has a lot of, lot less science and big words involved. Lovely. It's lovely. But I think that's something we can all embrace because everybody's got that disability and they need to stop focusing on the things that we can't do that are in our way. All right, what are the things that we can do? And most likely there's some lack of balance between because I can't do this thing, I bet I'm really good at something else because of it. There's no maybe way to quantify it mathematically or pour liquids in a jar and say it. But I truly believe that because of some deficit or disability, there's probably some super ability. You may or may not be aware of it, but I really 
really believe in that uh, that level of balance, which actually segues us to the the final thing that I wanted to talk about, which has been an ongoing debate and discussion that I've talked about for years, which is the term work-life balance. And everybody thinks we're working towards work-life balance, and I'm trying to change that conversation. And I know that you have a very similar feeling about this than I do. So if I were to say to you, what are your feelings about work-life balance and why we all need more of it? What would your response be? Yeah, so so um, it's an autistic thing, semantics, and how people use words and what words people use um, it, we, is, is processed in a very particular way in my brain. Like how things are framed and how things are said are incredibly important. You know, what words, uh, uh, you know, that idea of it's very courageous to... Um, come talk about autism or, or you know for, for, to talk about certain things in certain ways and I don't like to frame things like that I don't like to think of things like that I don't like to think of uh, the words work-life balance those that that term is broken we should we should eliminate that term from our vocabulary completely because the idea of work and life being balancing uh suggests that they are opposed to one another that 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 you can't have both that one is working uh, against the other and where one has uh, if you if you focus on one the other is going to fail it that's not how it works if you do them right they can both be elevated um i i think that Zach, you should be championing this it should be work-life optimization it shouldn't be work-life balance work-life optimization uh, is getting the best out of work and life. I've been very lucky with my job. I've uh, had a, a super um, run of, of career and, and been and worked with some amazing people. And I've and that's because it's luckily, especially on those things, it's been entwined with um, a very supportive home life and a, and a very happy home life. I uh, I live by the sea. You said at the beginning, I live in Brighton. I, I, I choose to live. Where I can walk down to the sea and just listen to the to the sea air, you know, we can do both. We can do both. They do not have to be on a balance. They do not have to be against each other. Both can succeed. Um, it, as soon as you unlock that idea in your head, then I think you stop making the two things compete with each other. Stop, yeah, stop making them compete with each other. Maybe take the foot off the pedal with the work one because you're not going to get there any faster. Oh, that's. Well, that's a great one, actually. Uh, when 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 you cycle to work and you see people like jumping the, the the red lights on their bicycles, you all end up getting to the same place at the same time. You know what? What does that actually save them? I'm I'm that guy that happily stops at every red light and chills out at every red light on their bicycle, and I get to work just as quickly as everyone else, and I get my work done just as quickly as everyone else. And by by living that way. Um, everything gets a bit easier. So so I, I would like you to champion work-life optimization. I love it. I'm, I want to dig into this deeper if you have a few extra minutes because I think this yeah, is absolutely please. vital. Uh, and it's so funny because uh, nobody cycles in Los Angeles, so I would never use that oh, example. Okay. But I, I, feel the exa- <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. And this is a huge pet peeve of mine on boarding airplanes. People are pushing and rushing and nudging, and I just want to scream, you realize the plane is leaving with all of us in it, right? And it doesn't yeah. matter when you get on the damn plane 
It doesn't matter if you're first or last. We're all leaving at the same time, right? I just don't say anything, but it's like the absurdity of rushing to get on a plane. Like, why? But anyway, that's beside the point. I completely and totally agree that work-life balance is a broken term, and you describe it in very similar fashion. The way that I've always talked about it is imagine that you have a scale with two sides where you have the weights on them, right? And with that image, you're thinking, well, if I work 40 hours, that means I've got to be with family 40 hours, and it's, it's just becomes a game of numbers and like you said they're opposed to each other in order for one to improve the other one has to decline and i love this idea of work-life optimization however let's play the semantics game for a second because very few would appreciate the complexity and the depth of having conversations about single words but i think you'll get it so i'm exploiting the fact that i have you on my call so you can become a free copywriter for the next 10 minutes Here's the challenge I have with work-life optimization, and clearly I'm working against my own goals because my entire program is optimize yourself, right? I don't believe work-life optimization is a result. If you're successful, you can say work-life balance is a result. I have work-life balance, which again is broken, but it's something you can have. Work-life optimization is the process, the result that I tell people to work for, and I want you to tell me if you feel this is better or worse, or we can come up with something different completely. I feel the goal is that we want to go through the process of work-life optimization to establish the result of more work-life presence. Meaning, I may work incredibly hard on my job and enjoy it and spend less time with my family, but when I'm at work, I'm present. When I'm with my family, I'm present and they're all working together seamlessly, but the semantics is optimization isn't a result. You're optimizing to get to the result of work-life presence. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's much nicer than work-life balance. I think balance it's it it's so it's such a bad term it, because it 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 puts the two things against each other. Work-life presence is lovely. I think um, and work-life you're right. Optimization is the process by which you're going through. Um, yeah, let's let's. I, I would I would love it if and I know that like your podcast it, it is the talking point that you have to talk about with a lot of your guests, of course. But I would love it if we got past, uh, uh, we got to an enlightened, you know, future time when work-life balance is not a thing. I think. Agreed. Yeah. Well, I think what what everybody wants, I think, is the right thing. I just think the terminology makes it so confusing to understand how to construct it. Yeah, you. But you can't fix it if that's what the terminology is, because because it suggests it suggests the wrong. It suggests the wrong answers. Um, it suggests I have to do less of this one or more of this one or, or, or whatever. That's not how it works. Uh, here's a great one. You'll, you'll use this and think think smarter, not harder, or whatever. You know, like like uh, uh, everything I do, whether it's a macro on a keyboard, so I only have to press it once and it does all the things. You know, um, or whether it's like just. In my in my room where I work, having my schedule and having my scene board like right there, so I can just turn and look at it. And and I, I work at home a lot. I'm in London today, but I work at home a lot. And everything is perfectly set up to work. You know, within a finger reach, I can find a file from a director that I worked with ten years ago, just like that. That m- makes it very easy to, to 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 finish at you know at six o'clock. Very easy to finish at six o'clock. And this. Um, knowledge like fundamental knowledge that it will not do better if i carry on 
like I, it will be better if I stop now. Yeah. And uh, this is a, a huge rabbit hole that we don't have time to go down with the, the 60 second version, the, the mini soapbox, like the, we'll call it the bar of soap and not a soapbox because we don't have time for a soapbox. Um, but this is what I think the fundamental fallacy is in the world of productivity. Productivity is an entire mega industry. And the fallacy is that by being more productive, you're going to have all this time in your life to do all the things you couldn't do before. That was the promise when we got electricity. That was the promise when we got refrigerators. That was <laughs> when, we, when we got washers and dryers, think of all the time we spent beating our clothes against a rock that we don't have to spend time doing anymore. Are we more relaxed and more balanced now than we were before washers and dryers? No. Same problem with Trello and with email and with all the productivity tools. They just put us in a position where we're forcing ourselves to do more which is why boundaries and working towards something that everybody calls balance, but again, I think should be called work-life optimization towards more work-life presence. I want to get through the work faster, but have it be better in that shorter amount of time so that I can still say at six or seven or whatever that cutoff time is, I've done more awesome work than anybody possibly could in this amount of time, but I'm still stopping because I want to be present elsewhere with another priority in my life. And it sounds like you're very much ascribing to that idea because with how easily you access a file or you've got your scene boards or anything else, you could still work 20 hours a day. They're not saving you that time from working less. You, that's a choice that you're making and making sure I'm as effective with the time I'm using. You could very easily be as effective with that time and do it 20 hours a day. Oh, and, and that I have made that mistake many a time. I mean, uh, uh, the, the worst is when you overlap jobs. When one job is finishing, the other one's starting. So you end up just doing both you know doing like i finish at six o'clock and then i start my other job <laughs> yeah, i have I been there more than once i can relate uh, to that and you I've, think I've you learn your lesson really after once but it's hard so yeah, yeah. I, to, uh, I definitely need to stop stop now. i feel like we've just started i feel like i've covered about about 10 percent of what i have in front of me as far as prep work and uh, conversations I want to have, but I also want to be respectful of your time. And I have a feeling that at some point this could end up becoming a part two. It could become a panel conversation. Like there's so many areas where I believe you can be tremendously beneficial to our global community. So I have a feeling this is the first of many conversations and not the end of one. Um, but on that note, I do at least want to wrap it up for today. And for anybody that is listening, that is inspired by this, that wants to connect with you, reach out or otherwise, what is the best way for people to learn more about you and or connect with you directly? Thank you for everything you just said, by the way, Zach. Um, and I, I, you know, I just want to reciprocate the thought with how important what you do is and how valued what you do is. And, you know, I've listened to your podcast and definitely come away uh, being able to think more about what I do and who I am and, and how I think. So do you know that what you do is like incredibly valued um, by a lot of people. Um, uh, in terms of contacting me, like I, I, I use Twitter. I like Twitter. Uh, it's Mr. Simon Smith on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I use Facebook and, and stuff like that. And, and I would, uh, you know, uh, it was very kind of you to say, you know, respect my time. I respect your, your listeners' time. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't want to waffle on too, too Oh, I don't respect my listeners' time at all. <laughs> like with, with the digital world, they can choose to listen to as much or as little as they want. So I, I don't worry about that so much time. anymore. You see how long the episode is. It's your choice to hit the play button. You can always scroll if you want to. So I don't worry about that so much. No offense, listeners. Uh, I, but I'm I more concerned about your time than theirs. No, no I certainly respect and, and I appreciate anyone who's listening to this. And I hope um, that, you know, uh, that people can come away from it feeling um, 
uh, interested in how our brains are different and ultimately I think more compassionate and, and empathic to other ways of thinking that that is you know always one of my goals to to to, to try my best to connect with people <laughs> and, to, and, to, and to you know make forge those those relationships and those bonds and those shared shared creative experiences as, as much as um, autism is, a, is an autonomous a, a, a personal thing there is something about being in the cinema with with you know 500 people watching a film together and all all gasping at the same moment that, uh, that is that is pretty wonderful oh, I love it uh, can't thank you enough for both reaching out and letting me know about all this and being willing to, to share your story it wasn't courageous whatsoever <laughs> want to make it very clear no courage involved um, but still a lot of appreciation from, from this end that you did reach out that you listen that you interact and we are here now and like I said I'm pretty confident this is the beginning of a much longer conversation as opposed to the end of one so I uh, can't thank you enough Really appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to go and read about Joey Travolta. <laughs> yeah, and I, I have a feeling by the time somebody listens to this, that interview might just be paired with yours because I think they're a really yeah, good, good pair and yeah, it's an yeah. untapped resource that I just uh, hadn't even really thought about would, until now. So I want to listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, cool. I'm, I'm definitely going to have that on my to-do list. So uh, on that note, right. take care of yourself and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You're the best. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.